Hackers are people who are going to always try to test the system. It's sort of a man versus machine mentality. Let's see where this will break. And they do it mostly so that they can fix it. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Deb Radcliffe. We ended the last episode talking about bug bounties and the case of Joe Sullivan of Uber. In this segment, we cover some intriguing topics, including how the role of a hacker strayed from being a noble career, the challenges of being a CISO, ransomware and IoT, and a fun glimpse into her book trilogy. We hope you enjoy it. The word hacking was a noble career. And then what happened, you have some really good insight into what happened in other countries and go into that a little bit. It's quite interesting. So it's one of those things where the term has been sort of mangled over the years by journalists and security pros. And now just everybody thinks hacker is a bad thing. But if you look up the dictionary definition, hackers are more like explorers. They're trying to figure out what's wrong with something. And, and hackers aren't even always related to technology. This terminology came up before high tech was high tech. So hackers are people who are going to always try to test the system. It's sort of a man versus machine mentality. Let's see where this will break. And they do it mostly so that they can fix it. So it won't break again. And that's the definition of a hacker. Those are the guys I knew. Those are the guys I grew up with. They were extremely technical, a little scary, and very good at what they did. And if I didn't write the article 100% accurate, they would send me millions of emails saying you blew it. So I had to stay really on top of it with the interviews because I wasn't technical. And I still, I think I could do the job as a CISO now, but in the olden days, I was really having a hard time understanding the technical terminology. So I repeated everything back to them in English. In fact, with accent once, Davida, I kind of uh, made your guy angry because we did a couple of other interviews later on down the road. And I think I did one all around different intrusion detection companies coming up. And he showed me the tool and, you know, he was really proud to show how it caught this thing. And I'm like, yeah, but by then they've already done this, this and this. They're way inside the enterprise. Like you caught them, but they already did their thing. They're already inside. And that made him mad. And then they started coming up with intrusion prevention. And even that doesn't, you know, people don't turn that on in line. So they're still waiting till they get inside to catch them. But that was the thing. Even at Sun, I was told by Sun Microsystems engineer I met later at a conference. He goes, you're Deb Radcliffe. Yeah. And I go, oh, God, I used to be so scared when I had to interview with you. I'm like, what do you mean? Because you always found the flaw. Ah, the woman the hackers were afraid of. Well, digital has created this massive momentum and scale for the uptick. So so really, are we looking at hacker as a term, but unethical hacker versus ethical hacker versus cyber criminal versus, I mean, what's the right nomenclature? Because I have a feeling we're too loose. I use the word attacker and criminal for anybody who's going after a company unauthorized. I use attacker if they're not being extremely criminal and criminal if they're monetizing off of it and there are victims and there are data sets that have been released on the web or sold or that kind of thing. So ransomware operators, they are criminals. They are not hackers. They are not attackers. 
They're criminals. They just push a little button. Someone else did the technology for them and they launched the ransomware. They don't even have to be technical to do this stuff anymore. The technical people took care of it for them. They made the programs. You just buy them online and be a ransomware operator. So scary. It's this whole thing. You had mentioned something just before, and I want to get into it a little bit more. Being a CISO, that's a huge amount of stress now to be a CISO or IT of security. And they're under the gun from the C-suite and the other boardroom and the shareholders. So what's a CISO to do? How do they manage that? And with all the newest problems, whether it's ransomware, remote work now, you don't even feel like you have any control over it anymore because everyone is remote. How do they protect crypto mining, quantum computing? How do they do that and manage? Oh, the quantum computing and crypto mining, I don't really think they're paying much attention to the future trends, which they should be. So do CISOs feel defeated? Do they think, uh, you know, there's only so much I can do. What's my risk tolerance and what can I deal with now and not later? Let's go back to Steve Katz. Do you remember the Citibank hack? That was the first one where we started talking about company hacks. Like that was the city hack, then it was the target hack, and then it was the this. But it started with Citibank. Steve Katz was the coolest CISO in the world because he came forward with a full report and let the media know exactly what went down. He held accountability for everything that happened. He talked about how to shore up the vulnerabilities. He taught the industry so much by being public about that. And he never got beat up on by the media for coming public with that. Now, fast forward to today, where whether you report, whether you don't report, whether you shore up the breach, whether you don't shore up the breach, even whether sometimes data was actually leaked or not. The CISOs are really the target of sort of not shaming, but the scapegoat target for companies. The companies won't listen to the CISOs that say, you know, our AWS buckets need some special attention or, you know, we really are moving to the cloud too fast. We haven't had a chance to enable you. And that that's the CISO's problem too, is they're usually seen as someone who's slowing you down. So if the CISOs can use enablement language, like we want to enable a secure cloud operation here to support your new business objective, we would like to get in on the ground floor of the planning with you and enable you as opposed to get in your way. So there's some of that is still a problem because we're moving CISOs up from a technical level who aren't business people. The other part of the problem is even if they're that good, they can still get thrown under the bus. And I think the Joe Sullivan case is a good one. Friends of mine off the record, and I can't name any of the large Fortune 500 firms they work for, have special things in their contracts to protect them from being thrown under the bus legally. And even with that, they may have a company come back to them four years after they quit and say, you know that breach we had way back when? Well, the lawyers need a deposition from you, which means we're throwing you under the bus. And four years later, after you've gotten rid of all your notes and everything related and you're working for a different company, I'm surprised we haven't had a lot of stories about CISOs having heart attacks, CISOs having strokes on the job. But I do know that friends in my age range in their early 60s are trying to get out because they think they're going to die. What do you think of some of the solutions to alleviate the stress or try to get smarter on the company side and even the consumer side? For businesses and CISOs and people in leadership positions in technology that have to relay the message to their leaders, you really need to know your business. You need to understand every merger and acquisition as it's starting to happen within your business 
You need to have policies that enable a secure transition during a merger and acquisition. That's one of the big areas where vulnerabilities occur. You need to have policies in place for pretty much every technology you're using that might touch on uh, personal privacy of employees or customers. Right now I'm doing a story on biometrics and I can tell you the CISOs are not paying attention to this one yet and laws are coming down that are going to affect their daily operation. They need to focus on speaking the language of the business. Everything they do needs to enable a fast-paced business rather than slow down the business because everybody's talking about digital transformation. And that just means running at the speed of light on your digital platforms and making sure you're always doing the latest and greatest that you can digitally connecting, digitally reaching your audience, digitally whatever. All of those business initiatives are going to grow as we continue to experience more work from home, more shopping from home, more more school from home, everything from home now. So now that changes their business model. Are they looking at that? Oh, no, it's not just Zoom, people. It's the way you're reaching and connecting to your buyers now is going to be different. They're not going to walk in the store. They're not going to hit a kiosk in the store that might be a little protected. They're going to be on some weird browser on their phone somewhere or at a coffee shop trying to buy food or whatever. Um And so I look at all of the changes that are happening right now and think, I'm surprised we haven't seen horrendous results yet, but I think they're coming. And then there's the area of IoT and medical and ransomware, and they need to have a policy developed, not just for preventing ransomware, which should be the first part of their policy, but for responding and reacting to ransomware. Ransomware operators, there is no honor among thieves anymore. There are trends showing that ransomware operators will continue to exploit you after you pay the ransom, usually with a form of blackmail we took your data, keep giving us money. Oh, we're releasing some of it on social media. Here it is. Give us money. So there is no sense in paying ransoms anymore. I hope that people get that because the ransomware operators literally just shot themselves in the foot. They had a very strong stream of uh, illegal revenue coming in. And if people realize that's not going to stop the ransomware operators from doing bad things, they will stop paying the ransom. So in my mind, that's kind of a good thing because the way ransomware goes is you pay them, it's lucrative, they keep doing it. If you stop paying them, it's not lucrative, they won't keep doing it. They'll find another thing to do just as evil, but at least we get rid of that. So IOT, that's huge. At SANS, we were writing papers five years ago about dairies and their refrigerators calling home to the internet. During the time that we wrote, started the article to the time we finished the, the white paper, sorry, there were, uh, like, it was like quadrupled the number of, uh, of these dairy refrigerators that came online. You could literally remotely turn off one of these refrigerators until the milk or whatever dairy product was in there goes bad, gets bacteria in it, and then you can turn it back on. No one would know the difference. They'd sell the product. People would get sick. I mean, it's that easy. That was years ago, and IoT has only gotten more connected since then. In the time remaining, Deb, I want to make sure we we talk about your book series. It's a trilogy called Breaking Backbones, and one question I have is when you have time to do all this, because you just are very efficient at everything. And uh, I wanted to know what sparked your idea for this cyber thriller series that has a little bit of espionage and cyber and private and public company and romance even. So you've got it all packed in there. Give us a quick summary and what sparked your idea. Let's go back to the IoT situation here and let's extend it to human chip implants. 
where now I have the convenience of being able to wave my arm, you know, the backside of my left arm across a scanner and pick up my groceries on the way out and pay for everything just that way, get into my building, get into my car, get into my bank account, get medical care, everything's there. Okay, so that's what I premised the book on, because now the data becomes very personal. It's your heart rate. It's your where your location is. It's your medical background. It's your pretty much your DNA. And so I always wondered about the privacy issues and the security issues around that. If it's technical, it can be hacked. So the first premise I had as I was thinking about this book was, okay, so there's going to be hackers hacking the chips and there is going to be corporate world controlling the chips. So I created a company called Globecom and I started writing. I had these characters in my head for probably 15 years before I wrote the book, but I always wonder how technologists would react if they were told that the only way they continue to be part of the society is to put a chip implant inside of them. And they know that it can be hacked because they can hack anything. They know that it can be monitored by someone with power and control if they got into the right programs. They know that it could be easily abused. What would they do? And I realized that half of them might go ahead and accept their fate and the other half would probably fight it with all their being. And so I called the book Breaking Backbones because they literally have to break a network that's being used to control the whole planet. They start at a big blowout scene at a data center and they're doing a global attack on all the data centers where Globecom is using to centralize everybody's data. And they figure by taking that down and the satellites down for communications that they'll be able to break the backbone and people will be able to decide whether or not, you know, they want to be free. The problem is a lot of people don't care, but a lot of the other people do because their relatives are disappearing. There's bad stuff happening. Their assets are being reallocated if they do anything deemed not positive towards Globecom or if they just get in the crosshairs of some of the bad guys behind Globecom that have actually done what I said they would do. They were taking control and power. It's been a real fun. The first book took a long time to get out, probably two years, but I had to develop the personalities for these characters but those people that you introduced me to or that your accent team introduced me to two of them are in the book bilbo is the character hobbit i actually asked him for permission he's now doing digital recording he's out of the hacker community del chai is main and main is a very large character well in book one so all of these personalities allure is someone i saw at a party that del chai took me to you know she was crazy weird looking and i always knew i was going to write about her i never met her but there was this lady on the other side of the room and she was probably six feet tall without shoes on she was wearing six inch stilettos and at six feet tall she probably weighed 130 pounds so just this. And then she wore skin tight vinyl from head to toe. That's something that sticks with you. Yeah. And I said to myself, who's going to be a character in a book someday? You know, and I don't know her to get her permission, but there was a real person that looked like that across the room from me. Now she's a warrior and she's Cyanthia's best friend and she's off grid with Cyanthia. So the hackers that decide not to take the chips have to go off grid. And the hackers that keep the chips, but they don't agree with the system are hacking their own chips. 
um, and hacking other people's chips. And the people off grid have to do identity theft and all these different things, medical identity theft to survive because they're no longer part of the system. So they are hacking other people's chips, but they're doing it as responsibly as they can so that nobody gets hurt in the process, but they hate it. But that's what they have to do to stay off grid. And they finally mount a war against Globecom. And that's where I started. And then I have to backtrack the story. And I have to do present tense at the same time, because the readers are going to want to know, well, if they took down Globecom, what happens to society? So that's the present tense. And the past tense is how did the lead character, Cyanthia, even get there to that decision to live off grid? And then when she did, how did they live off grid? And I tell that backflashes fairly quick because I don't want to waste the reader's time, but I know I want to, they're going to have questions. So I make sure those are answered in there. So it was a fun little romp and I finally got it into the publisher, Archway Publishing. It's in line edits right now. And my second book just went down and interestingly things changed how I thought they were going to go. It's just the way the story organically moved itself. And there will be a third book after that. And all I can say is that I am a person who sees all the things that could be done wrong with technology, but I'm also a positive, happy person. So the book has been called Gripping, Comma, and Fun, which is pretty much what I was going for. It's a very uh, common way in movies and TV now is to go present day, but then give the history by saying, okay, what happened 15 years ago? But you have that basis from the now, so it makes more sense versus going chronologically. And the second book doesn't do that because I don't need to. Well, you set the stage. Yeah, that's why the second book came out so much faster because now I know the characters. And then I realized the guy I was going to make a bad guy can't be a bad guy because it doesn't make sense. It changed. And the person I thought was going to be a good guy is becoming maybe the bad guy for book number three now. So that's interesting. Even in the course of writing, you have something in your head, but as you're writing, you just realize what makes sense and doesn't, and you can pivot. Did you have to do a lot of changing when you realized that, or did you just go with it? No, because I was organically, I mean, I had the big outline written and what we call the Bible, which is like a 10-page short summary of the story written in story form itself. But that's just the collateral I used to sort of guide me through the 200-page book writing and then you're writing forward. So I'm throwing, okay, in the next chapter, you need to add this. And then I go back to where I was. Oh, wait, you still need to add this. And then so you don't forget. So you get a little schizophrenic and hyper-focused and you dream about your characters at night and you keep your notepad by your bed because you'll wake up going, oh, that doesn't, why did you put, you're going to have to fix that section, add this, you know, and things come to you at the weirdest times, generally when my mind is quiet. Did you have any underlying intent for this to be a view into our future or from fear or foreshadow? The first book I wrote while I was fully employed at Sands, but when they let me go in April, I started doing technical writing for the industry and realized I really didn't want to do people's websites and stuff. And it lasted about two months. And I said, what do you want to do? And well, they called me the unicorn at Sands because not only could I write and edit and create an analyst program, I could sell content to vendors. And I realized, well, why did that work? Because I made the analyst program myself and I trusted the output of the analyst program. I had multiple editors working for me at the end and layers of editors over the writers. And I just trusted what I was selling. So trying to do something for a vendor that's not my company wasn't working even as like a quote unquote evangelist where I was at one company. And now I'm making my own thing again. I'm making the book. 
and I'm going to be selling that when it comes out. And between that, hopefully I'll actually get to make a living off of this because it's really fun, especially during a pandemic to be in your little fantasy world and the characters become more and more real. What was your next question? Just a foreshadow. I got a chip with my dog. So are we next? I'm trying to warn the world about the privacy issues that will happen once you've got something embedded in your body. Now, we're already seeing people do medical devices and things that are very life-saving, but we've also heard stories of them being hacked already. So imagine it would be walk-by, pass-by hacking mostly, uh, where RFID readers or whatever kind of signal it's sending out from your implant chip would be recordable or copyable from a pass-by person, right? So they could get in through the signal, they could copy your data, and you would never be the wiser. They could just have something in their pocket. So I'm using those kind of scenarios to show people, do you really want to put something in your human body? Really? You know, and um, I'll give away a little teaser from the book. What made Cindy Frank, the Department of Defense Forensics Investigator, become Scianthia was a pregnancy she was not going to chip her child. And that's when she decided to go off because they started chipping children at birth in this thing. And all I can say is without permission, that's wrong right there. And I used to ask my children this because uh, Scott McNeely from Sun Microsystems was all over chipping our dogs. We might as well chip our people too. And I was writing a story about it for Computer World Magazine. I turned to my kids. My kids are like 10, 11, and 14. And I'm like, kids, would you let mommy put a human chip implant for in for you if it made it so you could open doors and go to school and do your thing and buy stuff at the coffee shop? And they're like, no way I'd cut it out of my skin. All three of them said that. Well, you know, you've warned people in the past, so we'll see how it goes or how serious people get with data and personalizing the data and securing our privacy. I wish you all the best on that, Deb, and thank you so much for your time today. Super interesting conversation and down the road in a few months of something, maybe a hack or something big that happens, we can have you on to analyze it and decipher it. That would be great. I am currently working on something about biometrics and privacy for CSO Magazine. And I've been doing a lot of compliance-related research articles for them. So keep an eye out. I'll be posting those on LinkedIn. And that's one of the ways I'm keeping relevant and up-to-date on what's going on out here as an analyst and a journalist. Well, I wish you the best. Thank you so much for your time today, Deb. It was so much fun to talk to you as usual. Mahalo, as that means thank you. Mahalo. And aloha, which means hello and goodbye with love. Aloha. Aloha. Our thanks to Deb Radcliffe for joining us on the Look Left Marketing Podcast. For more information on her book and everything else she's up to, be sure to check out debratcliffe.com. Coming up next on the Look Left at Marketing podcast, Davida Dinnerman will sit down with Peter Arnold to discuss his 30-year career in communications. And there's much to talk about from Peter's years as a speechwriter in the Reagan and Bush administrations, to serving as a congressional press secretary, to the many years running his consulting firm, which has been immersed in some of the biggest tech topics of the last 20 years. We hope you'll subscribe to the Look Left at Marketing series on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we always welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.